This morning we're continuing our study in the book of Isaiah that we find in the Old Testament. And we've been looking the last few weeks at chapter 1. And in chapter 1 of Isaiah, things are pretty consistent. Isaiah the prophet is speaking to God's people of Judah, and they're not doing great. They're rebelling against God, messing up in all kinds of ways, and he's calling them out for it, saying things need to change. It's real bad. And then chapter 2 comes, and there's just this abrupt change in what he is saying. And it catches us off guard. Like, we're not even sure what's happening now. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is where we're looking today. You can find it on page 673 of the Black Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we give thanks for your word and that you speak to us. We thank you for preserving your word throughout the ages and that these words of Isaiah are still fresh today. And we pray that you would help us to understand them. I pray that you would use me in spite of my own sin, in spite of my own weakness, O God, to proclaim your word, and that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would open our hearts and minds to understand, O God, that you would change us to be your people, living for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning, I would like us to think about this passage in connection to this question. It is a question that some people feel they already have an answer to, and others don't. And that is, what do we do about the church's failures and poor reputation in the world? What do we do about the church's failures and poor reputation in the world? And by church, I do not mean just Bethel Church, but the church, capital C, the big C church around the world, God's church. What do we do about the failures and poor reputation of the church. And I think this passage gives us some hope. Isaiah first confuses us a little bit, 
And then he shows us what changes in God's people. And then he calls us to live into that change. The confusion of the passage starts in verse 1 because unusually we get an introduction here. An introductory comment about a vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And you're kind of like, well, why do you need that? It's not a change of subject. We've been talking about Judah and Jerusalem. Why is this here? Is that just someone inserted an extra verse or something and they didn't need to? Why is this here? Well, you realize its value once you get to verses 2 through 5. Because you read those verses and go, wait, are we talking about the same Judah? The same Jerusalem that we've been talking about in chapter 1? How can that wretched city of chapter 1 be a bastion for justice and peace? How could this self-interested, idolatrous group of sinners ever be thought of as a beacon of truth for the world? And so we're left confused, looking at chapter 1 and this beginning of chapter 2 going, this, this can't be the same people. But Isaiah gives us some hints to give clarity to what he is saying. He's telling us that something supernatural has occurred. Jerusalem was a city on a hill, on a mountain. Not the highest of mountains, but at least a mountain. And he's describing here that that mountain on which Jerusalem or Zion sits would rise to be the highest of all mountains. And if you've ever seen pictures of Everest, that's really high. Have to be a hard time living there. And so something supernaturally symbolic is happening here. The elevation of God's people as the highest and greatest. That supernatural symbolism continues in the nations of the world flowing to that city. Now we, for the most part, live here in western Pennsylvania where there are some elevation changes, I think it's fair to say. And we understand how things flow in hills. They flow downhill. When it rains, us up here on top of the hill don't have to worry about flooding. Down at the bottom of the hill, we see lots of flooding. And yet here, Isaiah is saying that the city of God will rise to be the highest of mountains and the peoples will flow up to them. And you're like, that's not, Isaiah, that's not how gravity works. Well, it's something supernatural he's symbolizing in these words. That they are drawn almost magnetically to God's people. That God is up to something among his people, among Jerusalem. He knows his people cannot change themselves into the greatness that he is predicting here. So he's going to do it. It says, The house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. To be established, to be lifted up, means that someone else is doing the establishing. Someone else is doing the lifting. And it is God, not his people. Using the word shall to tell us that this, as unlikely as it seems, will happen. Symbolically, I'm not sure that Jerusalem's actually going to be taller than Mount Everest and people are going to be like, oh, I'm getting carried away up this hill. I, don't, I think there is symbolism there. But what is being symbolized is going to happen in a way. 
that as dreadful as Judah's current condition was for Isaiah, he brings a word of hope from the Lord that their future is not a disaster, that God will use his people to bless all the nations just as he promised to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. But after chapter 1, that sure does seem unlikely. In fact, I imagine there were those cynics in Isaiah's day who thought Judah was too far gone. There was no saving her. She had fallen too far. They were a lost cause. Those things sound nice. We can sing about them, but they're never going to happen because Judah was too busy being like the nations in all the wrong ways for the nations to ever think they'd want to be like her. They'd probably tell people, you know what? God's people are a lost cause. All you can do is just focus on yourself, make sure you are right with God individually, and don't worry about trying to reform the people of God. That's never going to happen. Is that not how many people think of the church today? For the church, again, big C, not Bethel church, but the big church is God's people today. And there are plenty of pessimists and cynics who will tell you, you know what, we just need to give up on the church. Let's just keep our religion individual and private. Or those who would say we need to rethink church completely or get rid of it altogether because the church as it stands is a lost cause. Our reputation has taken too many hits. Our failures have been too great. But these cynical attitudes forget one thing that the church has a living God who can do the impossible. And he has promised to use his people to bless all the nations. And that seems real unlikely. It, I imagine it sounds just as unlikely as Abraham, some old guy without kids, being told, you're going to have a huge family, and through them, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed richly. Yeah, sure. And yet, if that's what God promises, it does not matter how unlikely or impossible it may seem. What God promises, he does. And what he is promising here is something quite unlikely. In verses 3 and 4, a complete change of things. Instead of God's people sinfully wanting to be like all the other nations, all the other nations come to God's people and say, teach us how to live for God. The nations say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. I imagine many of us who have gone to church for most of our lives hear that and are like, yes, yes, bring them all in. That sounds great. This picture of the nations flowing into the church is desirable it is so desirable that we have tried to make it happen in the wrong ways. The church has tried to attract the nations by any means necessary. By compromising her teaching in order to fit in with the prevailing opinions of the day, thinking that will bring people in if we just don't talk about this. 
or by choosing some people to the exclusion of others, saying, there's no way we can get a church full of all kinds of different people, so let's just be a church for these people and these people only. For many evangelical churches in America, our desire comes out of nostalgia to make the church great again, if you will, to restore what the church was in the last century when we felt relevant, when membership in churches was assumed, when Sundays were sacred, when pastors were respected, when weddings and funerals happened in sanctuaries. But are we going about that the wrong way? For other churches in America, the desire to attract the nations presents itself in a desire to be hip and stylish and cutting edge to the culture around us. We know what the nations want, and we cater to them with programs and performances and slick branding. But have we gone wrong there too in attracting them in the wrong ways? What is it that Isaiah says attracts the nations to God's people? What draws them and says, we want that? It is the power of God working through the word of God in the people of God creating a community of justice and peace. The power of God working through the word of God in the people of God creating a community of justice and peace. Those ideas of justice and peace are described here in verses 3 through 4 as what is attracting and changing the nations and God's people alike. Here's verses 3 and 4. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The justice of God's word is applied to the disputes and needs of the people, asking what is right. What is right for all people? For all people, men, women, and children are made in the image of God, whether they are rich or poor, and no matter what they look like or where they come from. And the weapons of war, the sword and spear, are reforged and remade into agricultural tools. So instead of taking up arms and fighting against one another, we live in the peaceful, everyday good life of tending the land and living as God would have us to live. These concepts of justice and peace are what Isaiah says will ultimately make the surrounding nations inquire of God's people. Because we can't find them without God. Not truly. Because it's God's word that ensures justice for all people. Without God's word, why should we care for that person that we can take from? I'd rather have it than give it to them. What do those people in that nation over there matter to me? It matters how we are doing. God's word is where justice comes from. And God's word causes us to look to our own sins first instead of the sins of others. And so we can achieve forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace for 
If we are a glass house, we will not be throwing stones at others, but seeking to live peacefully and forgiving one another's sins, no matter how different they will be from us. Justice and peace. When the world sees the church today, do they see a community of justice and peace? Is the church attracting people by being a community of justice and peace? We're about more than that, certainly. But Isaiah says it's part of it. Too often we have sought to attract the nations with things they can get elsewhere or already have. The world doesn't need the church to find good music, to find a well-run organization, to celebrate the holidays with nostalgia, to find something that is branded in a cool way or to have style, to even get good food or have funtivities or even to have concepts of family and belonging. They can find those things, at least in part elsewhere, but justice and peace seem to be things they cannot find. And that's sad because so often the church has failed in the simplest matters of justice and peace, in caring for the poor closest to us in even the smallest ways. Jesus gives the example of giving a cup of water to someone who is thirsty. The church all too often cannot even do that. And peace, we can fight over what time worship starts. If we can fight over that, how are we to have peace with people who are different than us? The squabbles of the church show that we are not a people of peace. And we're not all that different from Judah, the Judah Isaiah is addressing. And for that reason, the world has distrusted the church, and many believers have grown cynical about the church. In fact, many people expect the worst from the church. Yet in spite of all of that, Isaiah speaking to a sinful, adulterous, rebellious, terrible people who have failed in their mission gives them hope and calls them to action and says, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. To walk in the light has at least two important components. The light must shine on ourselves and it must shine before us to light the way. The New Testament reading from 1 John told us how the light needs to shine on us. That in order for us to walk in the light, we must enter into the light. The light of God's truth must shine on us, revealing what is there. That was part of what we saw in chapter 1. Judah could not see where they were. We need God's word to shine on us in all of its truth and show us individually and corporately where are we. And what John says here is the light reveals our sin. It makes us admit things we don't want to admit about ourselves, that we'd rather deceive ourselves and say we don't have that sin. But he tells us, don't worry about finding sin. Yeah, it's awful. If you confess it, Jesus will forgive and cleanse you from unrighteousness. It may be scary to admit our sins individually and as a church, but there is hope of forgiveness when we walk in the light. 
When we shine the light on ourselves, we enter into true fellowship, not only with God, but with one another. For we can only have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ by confessing those sins. The same is true of fellowship of one another. We have true Christian fellowship when we enter into relationship with one another, knowing, well, let's be friends. We're both sinners, so we're going to hurt each other at some point. Are you okay with that? Yeah, okay. We enter into relationships knowing that I'm not with a perfect person who's never going to let me down. I'm, I'm with someone who is going to let me down, and I'll let them down. But we have Christ to forgive us and to unite us when we do let each other down. And so when the light of God shines on us, we see ourselves as sinners saved by grace. And when that's the case, we can actually seek justice and peace. But we need a way to know what justice and peace is because the world will tell us all kinds of things that are justice and peace. And yet God tells us in his word what justice and peace is. And so his word lights our path, showing us this is the way to walk as my people. The light does not merely shine on us, but it shines before us. God's word tells us what justice looks like. He exhorts us to care for the poor and the widows, the orphans, the sick, the lost, and the oppressed. We are encouraged to operate honorably and with dignity, denying the selfish impulses towards greed, covetousness, and power, and so live justly. And God's word also helps us to find true peace when we are able to see how Christ unites even enemies through the cross. Because all people are made in the image of God. All people have sinned and rebelled against him. All people need to be redeemed in Jesus. And at that fundamental level, we can have peace knowing that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of looking to conquer one another, we take up the call to share the gospel with one another. And so Isaiah calls God's people to walk in the light of the Lord, to see our need of forgiveness and how he would have us live as God's people. And that call is not just for Judah, that call is for the church today. And so Isaiah is calling us and all the church to be the church, to live as God's people, not just through your own exertion or your moral fiber. We don't have it. We do it through the light of God's word that works in us to make us new people in Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you that walking in the light is going to bring its share of failures. We're going to mess up. And if we as individuals mess up, that means churches are also going to mess up. But just because we're going to mess up doesn't mean we should be pessimists and cynics and not give it a shot to be the church. Because there will be moments, moments I've had, and I imagine some of you have had as well, moments where we get glimpses or tastes, if you will, of how the church is meant to live. And there are few things better in this whole wide world than when the church is working as she is supposed to be and when God's people are living as God's people. In fact, it's already started. Isaiah says these things will happen in the latter days. If you've been downstairs in adult Sunday school, we've talked about how those latter days, the last days, has already begun when Christ came and said the kingdom of God is here. It has begun in part, and so we get tastes and glimpses now of that kingdom, though it is not yet fully here. 
And so we're not seeing all the nations flow in yet, but we see glimpses of people around the world coming to know Jesus Christ. Glimpses of justice and peace when the church lives as she is to live. And so we enjoy these tastes. Instead of surrendering to failure and cynicism and giving up hope in the church, we don't give up hope in the church because we can never give up hope in the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ. See, the nations were not simply flocking because they were like, man, those people are awesome people. Isaiah says they were flocking to Mount Zion for the God of God's people, flowing to the creator and redeemer of the earth, to the God of justice and peace who uses his word to renew people. And so let us live as his renewed people. Let us be the church. Be the ones who submit ourselves to what the word, the light of truth says to us about our sin and our need of Jesus. Let us be renewed in him to live in the path of light that he has called us to live in with justice and peace for others so that we can walk in the light and so be a light to the nations for Jesus Christ, the head of the church of his people, of us. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, it's crazy that you want people like us to bless the nations. That you use sinful, broken people like us to do what you want done on earth. That just doesn't seem right because we're real bad at it. And yet you are so good that you forgive us and change us and renew us and strengthen us to go and do it. And you endure our failures. You've endured them for generations and you continue to do so. And we pray, oh God, that you would help us to put our hope in you and not in our own abilities, but to simply live as your people being changed by the word. So work in us, oh God. Renew us individually and corporately, not just here at Bethel Church, but definitely here at Bethel Church and around the world, oh God, so that we can be like a city on a hill shining the light of Jesus Christ. That is our vision, that is our hope. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to make it a reality for your glory and yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.